Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. I am glad you are here and I'm glad you are listening to today's podcast episode. My mission in each and every one of these episodes is to really focus on the solutions to some of the biggest questions and most controversial topics going on in our current society. I feel like most of these conversations are not truly being discussed in a more logical and respectful manner due to the political toxicity that goes on with both the left and the right, both the Democrats and the Republicans. In this podcast, I don't care about any of that. I am focused on the solutions. I'm focused on bridging gaps. If you want to join me on this journey, if you want to discuss some of the most important topics, if you are tired of the political toxicity and negativity from both sides, please support this channel, share the podcast, and go to my website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. I appreciate the support. I'll continue to make content and hopefully we can start bridging these gaps and focusing on real issues going on in our world. Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. Ladies and gentlemen, it is your host, Riddell Lewis, back at it again. Today we're doing episode number 58. And it should be an interesting uh, conversation. I have a guest to have this discussion and re- referencing not only his book, but we'll talk a little bit m- about uh, the environment and some of the policies that obviously you may want to hear, of course. And one thing I will tell you all, make sure you guys listen to last episode. It was kind of an update episode of the podcast. So with that said, we're going to dive into the topic at hand, the conversation at hand, and to have this conversation with me, I have Will McLean Greeley, uh, author of A Connecticut Yankee Goes to Washington, George P. McLean, Birdman of the Senate, and new biography of Connecticut Governor and Senator George P. McLean. So, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Riddell. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem, no problem. Uh, I think this should be an interesting conversation, of course. Uh, we talked about a lot of different things on the podcast. Um, we haven't really touched upon um, individual uh, politicians, not much other than like the more recognizable ones that we talk about current day or past tense. And in terms of the environment or any environmental policies, we kind of touch upon certain things regarding climate change, but obviously there are things that we could talk about in reference to that topic a little bit in more depth. And this is one of those conversations, I'm sure. So before we dive into the meat and potatoes of what this conversation will be about, we'll start off with our subtopic, deep, deep or, or deeper. deeper, a great subtopic that I have in every show an interesting question that is posed and gets the brain turning a little bit. And maybe the audience, if you're listening, gets your brain turning as well. You can let me know what you guys think about that question, of course, if you guys visit my website. Now, I'm curious on your thoughts here, Will. The question is, should religious symbols not be worn by people who don't believe? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I'm a religious person myself, and I believe that um, what's really important is what's in your heart. You know, in terms of your religion, um, outward symbols of expression, uh, I think really should take 
secondary importance to what is in your heart and what you uh, what you really believe. And so, to me, religious symbolism is or is 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 not as important. And um, I feel as if we don't want to judge people on on appearances either. Uh, I think it's better to get into a a personal relationship with somebody before you start discussing religion. It's a personal issue. And to avoid prejudging people, judging by appearance, looking at outward expressions like symbols, I think really the best way to deal with religion is to really engage somebody on a personal basis. There's a lot I agree there. Now, I'm personally not religious. And to give context for the audience and what made me think of this question is I was watching a podcast or maybe reacting to a podcast on my channel, my YouTube channel, and they were having conversations with other individuals. And it wasn't a religious conversation per se, but a topic of conversation came up in referencing religious symbols. And one person kind of referenced, you know, certain things being offensive in terms of, you know, someone else representing or someone else maybe, you know, doing a parody of X, Y, and Z. And the person who made the comment was wearing a cross around their neck. And they were wearing this cross, and despite it, I, I forget if it was just a normal cross or maybe a, you know, edited version of it. But when they asked about it to her, she said, oh, you know, I'm just wearing it to wear it. And the follow question is, would you wear a yarmulke? And she said, well, that's different. So it was a very interesting, you know, back and forth because we know the the significance of, of the cross to Christianity. Um, we know certain significance for like the Star of David to Judaism or even a yarmulke, of course. And the way we kind of treat the cross in current Western society is very unique. It's yes, it's a religious symbol, but a lot of people arguably um you know close to maybe half maybe 40 percent of people this is just a rough number i'm coming out of uh, coming up with you think of the cross as just a, a aesthetic you know getting tattoos wearing chains getting earrings of crosses and they said oh, it just looks cool it's an aesthetic regardless of what it's supposed to mean so it begs a very interesting question on if that's okay. Now, I'm curious on your thoughts about this. One thing that I did here, and maybe not in defense, but to add more context in terms of the cross and difference that differs from maybe other symbols, is the cross is supposed to be used this way. It's supposed to be popularized to a certain extent to the to the public and spread around across the world, obviously, during um, back in history when Christianity really became something that was pushed all over the world for, you know, various reasons. We don't got to get into that. And using the cross as the main symbol to kind of define the religion is something they put out there so everybody knows what it is, regardless if you believe. So because of that kind of push, because of that movement, that's the why the cross is not seen nearly as like as not necessarily religious, but it's not seen nearly as offensive to use it as a non-religious religious object in comparison mm -hmm. to other religious symbols. 
What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I noticed that, um, for example, athletes are where, where crosses. Um, the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers comes to mind. I, I always see him with a with a cross, and other athletes wear them. And I don't always know if that's a reflection of a heartfelt religious sentiment, or if it's um, like you're kind of referring to, it's really jewelry. Um, but it often stimulates my thinking and you know to look into you know what does this coach or this player what do they really believe and you know i might look at their biography and sometimes they really are believers you know and this is a a way for them to show the world that you know this is their faith and they want people to know and they want people to know that this is important to them Um, other times it could be jewelry so from that standpoint um it maybe someone is trying to communicate uh, to others that they want you to know this about them. Um, and it, it allows you a way to engage them on that topic that's important to them. Um, I don't know of many people who wear it um, as just jewelry. Most of the people I know wear it because this is a meaningful symbol. And this is something they want people to know that, hey, I'm a believer, you know, I'm a Christian. Um, I'm proud of that, and I'd like to talk to you about it. Um, but if somebody chooses to wear it as simple jewelry, um, I wouldn't condemn them for that. Um, but most of the people that I know that wear them, it's it's an expression of their faith. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so if you guys are listening, feel free to let us know your thoughts on this question of should religious symbols not be worn by people who don't believe? Very much be interested. Obviously, you can send me an email or comment down uh, in the comments of your response to the question itself. Now, what I like to do for all like 1v1 discussions with guests is kind of give a framework or allow the audience to see or hear a framework of who the person they're talking to. I reiterate constantly on the podcast that this podcast really is here to show that regardless of affiliation, identity, you can have a conversation, a productive one, whether or not you disagree or whether or not you agree doesn't really matter. But the identity is part of you. But in order to kind of or for people who are listening, you must be willing to engage in these conversations because that's how compromise and solutions are found in the first place. So first thing I want to ask is, do you have a political affiliation or political identity you abide by? I consider myself, Riddell, an independent. Um, I tend to take the more middle of the road path. Um, and I this is becoming more important to me as I see our country so polarized and extreme views on both sides of the political spectrum dictating um, so much and creating gridlock. And so I look at myself more as an independent, um, a moderate. Um, I'm willing to look for ways of compromise and to be more focused on solutions to problems as opposed to engaging in culture wars or finger pointing. And so that's really where I come from. And it's very similar to the um, subject of my book. Um, while this man, uh, Senator McLean from Connecticut, lived many years ago, I believe he too 
was more of a moderate in his political persuasion and was always looking for ways to solve problems through compromise. I couldn't agree more. Obviously, if you guys have listened to the podcast, I follow along the middle as well. I just look up for solutions that I think logically make sense. Uh, with that said, you kind of mentioned a few things on, on some issues you're referencing, such as the cultural war, for example. What is your opinion on the current discourse politically in America? And do you think this is the worst it's ever been since the Civil War? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I believe that the most polarized we ever were as a country was the Civil War. Uh, maybe that's that's an obvious statement, but that was four years of uh, a very very costly war. I think there was like a million casualties when you consider um, the people who died from disease as well through that war. So things have never been more polarized than at that point. Um, and if you look at history, it took a couple of generations after the Civil War to come together as a country and begin to solve problems that were urgently affecting the American people. And that was this time called the Progressive Era. This was like the Theodore Roosevelt era, sometime 1900 to 1920. So that's like two generations after the Civil War, where people... Uh, saw how bad the country was through the Civil War, and they said, we're not going to repeat that. We're going to move forward. And where I'm going with this, Riddell, is that I think we're in a similar situation now. We're in a somewhat of a civil war. Obviously, it's it's not a bloody civil war, but we are very polarized. And I'm hopeful that a generation ahead will learn from the dysfunction that we're experiencing now and move away from this polarization and we'll have a new progressive era. These are like my kids in their 20s now. They can't relate to what's going on now. They can't relate to these aging leaders. And my hope is that um, while there's no quick fix to this problem, that we're headed in the right direction and that a generation ahead of us, maybe more, will set all of this polarization aside and start to solve the critical questions that confront us, like climate change, like gun control, like um, our border situation. These are problems that are crying out for solution, but our current crop of leaders can't get to them because they can't even decide on a Speaker of the House. They're so divided and they're so polarized. Yeah, it's definitely uh, very you know, turbulent as of right now. And with the recent stuff that is happening, truly is highlighting the polarization um, ever so before. Obviously, social media kind of showcases it more, especially to, you know, specific types of individuals. But from what you've seen from, you know, whether it's, you know, the vaccine, COVID stuff, whether it's, you know, the January 6th Trump stuff and the Ukraine-Russia stuff and currently the, you know, Palestine-Israel stuff. The the sides are so stuck in their beliefs that associate closest to the ideo ideo um, ideological values that their side is supposed to be perp uh, perpetuating. And regardless of you know, common sense to an extent, they are 
willing to stay by their side no matter what. And it's it's reaching very weird situations. I think recently there was a circumstance regarding Palestinian uh, supporters. I think they're at D.C. I briefly kind of scanned the, the, the situation or the post on social media. And they're kind of comparing it to the January 6th stuff. But from what I'm aware, they were not nearly as violent as the January 6th rioters. But there were a lot of people who were arrested. And one politician says they should be kind of, um, you know, basically sent to prison. And it's just showing you how, how far these circumstances are going. And it doesn't bode well because there's really no conversation. It's just people getting upset, acting, and, you know, that's that's as far as it's going basically so mm-hmm. i definitely i definitely see you there uh, with that said you said you're independent moderate do you believe the value of third parties could help mitigate the political polarization in society i think they're inevitable because so many people are disenchanted with the choices that they're being offered and i think there will be some significant third party activity this year. If nothing else, I think it's just an expression of the frustration that many people have that the two major candidates are unacceptable. And so rather than just sitting on the sidelines and not voting at all, uh, I think that the third parties will play a significant role in certainly the presidential um, race in 2024. With, in addition to that, or to add on to that, there's um, some kind of movement to change the way we vote, especially starting from the local level, that will make third parties more valuable, and that'll make, you know, selecting a candidate more representative to the voters' will, basically. So there's new techniques, I don't know if you heard of them, there's stuff called approval voting, ranked choice voting, star voting, and some other techniques as well that's supposed to represent the the voters way better than the current way we do it, where it's more of a choosing a lesser of two evils kind of system to some, right? Where they don't like Trump or Hillary, but Hillary's worse, I'm choosing Trump. They don't like Biden or Trump, but Trump is worse, I'm choosing Biden. So this a new voting method, some may say, could really change how we are represented in politics. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I think that um, those types of proposals make sense and grow out of the frustrations that, that people have. Uh, I don't know what the process is to um, pass that type of of, of uh, legislation that would fundamentally change the way we vote. Um, you know, what the way we vote now is, is really pretty uh, established and it, it almost amuses me how it has, has not changed with technology. You know, we still go to the, this, the local school and we wait in line and uh, there are these uh, people there that take our ballots and, I've often wondered um, when will voting catch up with changes in technology? Um, I'm sure that those processes are put in place and they're shielded by laws and that we'd have to change those laws in order to, to make 
significant changes in the way we do things. But if you look at the way we run our lives, um, very few things haven't caught up with technology, but voting certainly has not. Yeah, on on the general scale, on the large scale, for sure, um, some organizations are steadily trying to change it at certain local levels, certain states. Um, but obviously, when you make a change, you have to prove why this is better than the alternative. So I, on my podcast, have seen some of these methods. And I will say approval voting, star voting are definitely techniques that I do think can uh, benefit the country as a whole, starting at the state and local level. So I basically talk about it every podcast ever since I learned about it. It seemed pretty interesting, not going to lie. So with that said, we could dive into the the topic at hand. And I basically going to kind of leave the, the floor open to you uh, or, yeah, let you uh, kind of talk about what solutions that you think that the audience needs to hear um, what the book that you were referring to earlier is about so the audience can kind of figure out, you know, what's, where's your stance, basically. So the floor is yours. Do you want a great website like this? This is my podcast website where I direct the audience to come to watch the content, listen to the content, read the blogs, and much, much more. If you want to have your own customizable podcast website, then join my affiliate link in my description to sign up for something called PodPage, and they can help you customize an easy podcast website for your personal podcast. Sign up to get a discount now. Again, use the link in my description to join PodPage now. Well, I'm a historian, and I believe that getting an historical perspective on issues that face us today uh, helps us see them more clearly and in some ways takes away some of the uh, stress that's associated with trying to understand why things are the way they are. And so I think history gives us a really good perspective on uh, issues of today. My book is about the conservation movement and the origins of the federal government becoming the watchdog for our environment. Uh, It began with this legislation that was passed in 1918, um, over 100 years ago. But this was the turning point in the way the federal government interacted with the states Uh, regarding environmental protection. This was the watershed moment that ushered in this era of the federal government being this watchdog that set regulations for the states and enforced them. Um, My book deals with the passage of this legislation called the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which um, fundamentally changed the way in which um, people in the United States and around the world treated migratory birds. But it's it's proliferated into all types of animals and even to the environment itself, the overall environment. Before this legislation, each state was free to set its own hunting laws for birds and enforce them however they wanted. And as a result, there was excessive hunting and bird extinctions that occurred in the early 1900s. And many more birds were on the fast track to extinction. And so it was fundamentally a state's rights argument. The states wanted to preserve the right to set their own hunting laws and enforce them however they wanted. 
but this uh, senator from Connecticut that the book my book is about, he saw a different way, and that was for the federal government to establish um, hunting laws for birds and enforce them. And as a result, this legislation passed. And now over 1,000 birds are protected. They cannot be hunted at all. These are the migratory birds that most of us know about. Over 1,000 species you cannot hunt, including the bald eagle and, and many others. And then there are hunting seasons that are established for all the states. So you can't hunt in the spring like they did uh, prior to this legislation. So the importance of this um, legislation is that it, it ushered in this era of the federal government being a watchdog, a regulator of the environment. And before that, um, uh, the states were free to set their own laws and there was excessive hunting and bird extinctions were uh, common then and many more were um, expected. It's when, it, when we're talking about a uh, situation regarding animals, it's always such an interesting, it can be a controversial topic for some. Um, obviously, from my point of view, when it comes down to it, uh, you know, I think, you know, humans first. I'm not a, you know, PETA person. I don't think that, uh, you know, if you could save a person or an animal, you probably should save the animal. I guess, depending on the situation, if it's your dog versus some other person, maybe, I don't know. But I will say this, that we as the kind of primary species, the, the top dog of the planet Earth, definitely have a responsibility to kind of protect our environment and the kind of callous nature that we think we can treat, you know, other animals is definitely warring, right? Because it can be a trickle down effect considering how you treating other life basically and we know you know nature the ecosystem is kind of a you know give and take a a push pull a kind of it's a cycle for a reason that plays into each other and that can that makes earth as stable as it's supposed to be right we know this of course uh so protecting the birds and the way based on what you're talking about seems valuable obviously imagine if we didn't have the bald eagle or or uh you know, nation's animal, basically, you know, eagles are pretty cool animals from what I've seen. So can you explain the process uh, uh, Senator McLean went through to kind of get to the, the federal government to kind of make them act in a way that probably was against their previous opinions, especially in a situation where you had to get Republicans and Democrats to kind of agree that this is the best course of action. Yeah, it was a seven year struggle to pass this legislation. Um, McLean was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1911, and his maiden speech in the Senate was on the topic of the importance of federal protection for birds. And the initial legislation um, was opposed by hunting groups and also the hat industry, the women's hat industry that wore these feathers, uh, very elaborate feathers on their hats. You know, think of the Titanic and the kind of fashions of the passengers on the, on the uh, Titanic. Um, but then it was the states' rights advocates that were the most um, strongly opposed to this legislation. They wanted to keep uh, hunting laws in the hands of the states. Uh, there were millionaire hunting clubs uh, all along many migration routes. 
and spring hunting was very popular. And business people would come to these um, hunting clubs and hunt in the spring when uh, birds were um, migrating and nesting. And it was easy hunting for them. In addition, um, business interests wanted to have this plumage trade so they could hunt uh, very colorful birds like the flamingo, the egret, and they would kill these birds and sell the feathers to the hat industry. So there were a number of very powerful influence groups that were against this legislation. And McLean had to create a, um, a group of uh, a consensus amongst uh, many other environmental groups and uh, gun manufacturers he enlisted, um, ironically enough, um, conservation groups uh, like the Audubon societies. He brought these all together to create this legislation that took virtually seven years to pass. Um, so those were the key groups aligned against this federal role, uh, hunting groups, um, the hat industry, and states' rights advocates. And he used a variety of tactics over a seven-year period to create consensus on getting this legislation passed in 1918. It's very interesting uh, considering, and I, I was curious on the state's right aspect um, before you even brought it up on how he was going to convince states to kind of let the federal government take charge. That's definitely the a big conversation nowadays in referencing a lot of issues that we've talked about plenty on this podcast, whether it's gun rights, whether it's abortion rights, whether it's certain educational principles, of course. And the the value of states' rights versus when should the federal government get involved is always a tricky area to balance. When do you think Senator McLean um, was found out or decided that this is the this is the chance or this is the perfect time for the federal government to get involved over the states' rights to do whatever? Yeah, it, it was the, the biggest challenge to pass this legislation. Um, he knew and many others knew that the U.S. Supreme Court would very likely strike down this legislation. So they actually did a workaround, if you will, Riddell. They came up with a, uh, um, a solution that avoided the Supreme Court's ability to even challenge this legislation. And this is what they did. Um, it's called the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So they put this issue in the form of a treaty, and they had it signed um, between the U.S. and Great Britain, Canada, and several other nations. And it was the treaty power that um, allowed for this legislation to withstand a U.S. Supreme Court challenge. Because there's something in the Constitution called the Supremacy Clause. And that, what that means is that if a treaty is entered into by the United States and, and um, ratified by the uh, Senate, it cannot be challenged by the U.S. Supreme Court. So in effect, it was like a workaround um, at this early stage of our history, 1918, to create this um, legislation enabling the federal government to oversee this very important part of our environment. Now, subsequently, it was challenged in the, in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1920, 
um, it was a decision called um, Holland versus Missouri in 1920. And the Supreme Court ruled seven to two that the supremacy clause of the constitution um, was powerful, was, uh, the, was enough to allow this legislation to uh, continue. And so the federal government does did have the role at that time um, to enforce this new way of looking at bird protection throughout the United States. That's very interesting. I, I could definitely see how a treaty would be possible because it's birds. So obviously the birds, you know, the entire world has an invested innate interest or innate you know, want potentially to protect birds. They're not exclusively a United States situation, regardless, you know, if they are naturally, you know, born here or not. So I could definitely see how that's possible. So did he reach out to specific politicians or was he granted a certain ability to speak to the other governments directly? How how did that work? Well, the key thing he did, Riddell, was enlisting uh, the president at that time who was from the opposite political party. So this really gets at your um, the thrust of your podcast. And McLean was a member of the Republican Party, which, by the way, was the reform party of this era. This was the Theodore Roosevelt reformers, the progressive party. The Democratic Party at that time in U.S. history was pretty regional and very much dominated by the states of the old Confederacy. But what McLean did is he reached out to then President Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat, and the two of them worked together to um, uh, persuade people from both parties to buy into this idea of the treaty. Uh, and they were successful. And this is an example of how bipartisanship is often the key to effective governing um, in our country. And it's a great example. I know when I talk to people about my book around the country, this particular theme really resonates that a Democratic president and a Republican senator were willing to come together to solve a critical problem. And they persuaded members of their own party to get on board and pass this legislation because many birds were on the verge of extinction. Uh, the snowy egret, the flamingo, the wood duck, um, many, many other birds were on the verge of extinction. And Wilson and McLean came together and said, you know, we really have to end this excessive hunting and we have to empower the federal government to intervene and enforce um, laws across the country if we want to save these bird species. And they did. That's that's definitely I definitely resonate with that theme as well. Um, the ability to do as such by Senator McLean. Um, with that said, in that situation, you, you mentioned that they were on the verge of an extinction, mm -hmm. which tends to happen when it comes to humanity mm -hmm. is they tend to act when only crisis is around the corner. Do you think there is any issues today that your book can relate to that we can potentially take an action to potentially come together and kind of rectify it or solve it based off the circumstance. Um, in my, all the kind of uh, more social issues when it comes to abortion, it's hard for me to say that there's a crisis. When it comes to mass shootings, 
I mean, obviously there's uh, been an up and down since COVID, but we obviously know that America has a mass shooting problem in comparison to the rest of the world. But can you argue that a crisis? Some would say yes, some would say no. There's a lot of differing opinions. But I guess the, the, the ones that you could argue is a potential crisis because of the potential ramifications down the line is the situation regarding Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Palestine. Do you think there is something that we can learn from that book that can help with these potential crises that is around the corner? Yeah, I think the the overall success that I saw in this legislation was centered around people willing to compromise and people willing to um, come together and uh, find solutions to problems. And I see that that's lacking in where we're at today on some key domestic issues. You mentioned a couple, you know, gun control, climate change, the border situation. Um, I think those are examples of issues that many people really care about and think that we could find some solutions to those problems if, if um, each side would be willing to um, give up something and give something in other, and give in, in, in other ways to find concrete solutions. But we're far from that. And uh, I think some of it is the leadership that we have. Um, and uh, I, I, I just, I'm hopeful, like I said earlier in our call here is that the finger pointing and the culture wars are going to someday uh, end when we have a younger group of leaders that move ahead and look at the era that we're in right now and just say this just wasn't working something had to change and we're going to be part of that change movement but i just think the current leadership we have is is just too locked in the past to come up with creative solutions to some of these big issues that we all care about so much. I definitely see what you're saying there. And it's very unfortunate on the, the current state of things where it's more than a difference in, you know, certain opinions, whether it's like, you know, anti versus pro X, Y, and Z. There's a certain kind of rhetoric since Donald Trump where there's a kind of an anti-establishment, the government is against you, populist rhetoric that is going on a lot in more so the Republican side and also in the in the in the far left progressive side too. So having it in two fronts just makes things much much worse, but definitely more popularized in the right. And obviously, like I said, it's related to Donald Trump and with the new candidate Vivek coming on the way, kind of saying very similar things. This resonates with the people a lot. They they hear and they want to kind of believe that, yes, it's the government trying to go against our guy. So it makes it harder to come to a compromise to kind of find common ground to give that give and take when you have one side of the aisle thinking that the establishment themselves, the institution itself is corrupt. So anything that they propose is 
bad. It's so it's such such an easy way to demonize the other side and not listen to them and think that you're in the right based off this kind of forefront ideology from the right. Um, do you think that this is something that we can potentially get past uh, to kind of return to a place of, you know, commonality and trying mm-hmm. to kind of work together? I may disagree, but we need to work together to get stuff done for the country. Yeah, I, as an historian, I, again, I just kind of fall back on what can we learn from history? And, and that is, you know, we, we experienced this American Civil War from 1861 to 1865. Um, very bloody war. Country was was split. It literally was. There were two separate countries at that time. Um, we did emerge from that. It, it didn't happen overnight, though. It, I think it took several generations um to move beyond that um to get to a point where new leaders emerged younger leaders emerged dedicated to solving problems and not rehashing and reliving the issues that precipitated the civil war then and so i take comfort in that um it might be a cop-out but i just believe that we are currently in something of a civil war um certainly not as bad as 1861 to 1865, but there's definite polarization. I think we will emerge from this. When you're stuck in this um, situation now, you feel like it's never going to end. But when I talk to my kids um, who are in their 20s, um, they basically tell me they can't even relate to these um, current crop of leaders that we have at least at the presidential level and that they're looking ahead to a time when they'll, they'll, they'll they will pass from the scene and there'll be new leaders that will come forward that won't be stuck in the past and they'll be focused on on solutions on 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 creative solutions to problems because that's the way my kids are they're they don't really care about republican democrat now maybe this is just my my kids but they're not rooted in those past loyalties they're they're thinking more about you know, how do we solve the key problems that confront us as a nation? And I think there will be leaders someday that will have that mindset. And we'll look back on this period of time, not unlike the way we look back at the Civil War. How could people um, have gotten involved in that conflict uh, for five years almost? Um, and that's that's my hope. But I know it's not a quick fix. We all would like to solve these problems tomorrow. But that's the only thing I can really come up with, Riddell, in terms of um, how I see a silver lining in this cloud that we're living in. Yeah, I I definitely think that our generation, my generation, future generations should be able to learn from the mistakes that is going on now. I've said continuously on this podcast that we have the experience uh especially my generation living kind of before the social media area obviously i grew up when myspace was created facebook was created now x slash twitter is created so i kind of grew up before during and current obviously and the generation i live in and the generation after me we should know how these things work in terms of social media so when we pass it on based off our kind of uh, 
you know, conception or pass it on based off our understanding on the damage that this can uh, provide in terms of discourse that can play dividends. And it's very similar to politics as well. Once we learn or once we understand how certain things are going in terms of the willingness to kind of buy in emotionally to these ideological values to the point where it's detrimental to the country and to the world as, as a whole, America being the number one power in the in the world, of course. So I'm definitely with you there, but it obviously takes an effort from people on my generation, people in the next generation that are understanding of these things to continuously push a message. That's why I feel like my podcast is a proper source for people to kind of get that proper context and proper understanding um, and then pass on that message to everybody else on this is probably how we should be handling things, of course. With that said, kind of touch on upon the kind of environmental aspect a little bit more in-depthly. Uh, in um, do you think there are other or do you think there are environmental issues in America other than climate change, of course, which is a hot button issue consistently that America is not focusing enough on and their efforts aren't putting on are putting onto to change, of course. Yeah, well, the the um, issue of protection of birds has changed since this original legislation was passed in 1918. We're no longer um, threatened by bird populations are not threatened by hunters, individuals who are hunting birds for either food or for fashion industry. That that's pretty much um, a thing of the past. But um, we are have we have new threats, um, and some of this is in terms of, um, of of habitat loss. And so the Migratory Bird Protection Act is now being enforced against developers who want to create like a condominium in an area where there's unique bird nesting sites. And so this legislation has been enforced against developers. It, the largest fine ever levied by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was against a corporation, Exxon, when it had this major oil spill in Alaska. And so now it's changed to uh, enforce um, mainly against corporations, timber companies, oil companies, developers who are threatening habitats, critical habitats. Um, and this was weakened under the Trump administration they wanted to change this legislation so that it could only be enforced when birds were intentionally taken or killed. But, but the problem is, is that most bird killings are through unintentional, like the Exxon oil spill was unintentional, but it still was enforced. Now, fortunately, the Biden administration has reversed that Trump uh, ruling that it was only intentional killing that could be enforced. And now it's back to the way it was in intended unintentional and intentional. But this is an example of how important groups like the Audubon Society are to uh, correct this misinterpretation by the Trump administration and to press for the changes in the courts to get it back on its solid footing that it is. And of course, a change in administration helped as well. The Biden administration came in and restored the unintentional and intentional um, take rulings in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So we have to stay vigilant. 
And it's group like groups like the Audubon Society that we need to continue to support because they're on the front lines of this struggle. And I think those groups are really important. Um, Riddell, you know, it's not the government, but it's the watchdogs of the government, groups like the Audubon Society, really important to support those groups. So based on what you said in referencing um, kind of earlier precedent, obviously you referenced state, uh, state rights, which is, uh, you know, always a part of the conversation when it comes to implementing policy. But from what it sounds like, you know, it never was a valid reason in terms of food or, you know, fashion to kind of go after these birds that are going extinct. Nowadays, the conversation in terms of the United States is that, one, we should, you know, become a primary energy uh, exporter, a primary energy country which, you know, obviously also create more uh, jobs here. So that probably would involve, you know, digging up oil um, and, you know, being able to utilize the energy we have here to to become this type of power so we're not reliant on other countries, of course. And another thing that's popping a lot in terms of conversation is the housing market crisis where we are not able to, kind of find people homes, the housing market prices are rising, we need to build more homes for people. So in referencing what you were referring to some of the things you were referring to in terms of the oil, uh, unintentional issue, and building potentially condominiums or other locales in these places where birds are migrating, this seems like a more complex issue, because there's an want at the very least from the right more so than anything else there's a want to utilize these areas that will benefit the people because of need versus want this time is probably how they would phrase it it's probably how a lot of republicans will phrase it how will you battle something like this versus you know how it was back in the day it definitely seems a lot more challenging yeah well let me give you an example of where it worked um the bald eagle we've talked a little bit about, but in 1963, there were only 400 bald eagle nests um, left in the United States in 1963. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act is the framework in which the federal government could begin to bring that bird back uh, into uh, a reasonable population. And so now in 2020, there, the last count that I have is there's 71,000 bald eagle nests in the United States. This is just in the 48 United States. It doesn't include Alaska, and there's more there. So we went from almost seeing the, the bald eagle, our nation's symbol, go extinct in 1963 when there were only 400 nests to now there's um, 71,000 bald eagle nests in the 48 states. So this is an example where government works. Um, you know, we're really down on our government for what it, what it seems dysfunctional and, and doesn't seem to work. But this has happened in the last, um, you know, 50 or 60 years to bring back this beautiful symbol of our nation. And to me, this gives this is, gives me some hope. You know that first of all, you had the legislation passed. And secondly, you, you have the regulatory groups like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service administering the law. You have groups like the Audubon Society and others that are keeping 
um, everybody appraised of what's really happening and doing these counts of nests and for example for instance and this is a success story you know i think it's easy to get down on on how government fails but i don't know about where you live in ohio i'm in michigan i see bald eagles i wouldn't say commonly but i'm seeing them and this to me is is a hopeful thing um, that government can function properly um, and Imagine if we could take this same approach to other issues that we want to see solved. Um, having laws passed, having the right people involved in enforcing them. Um, I think this, to me, is a hopeful message that we, we can get past where we're at uh, based on what I've seen here with this Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Fair enough, fair enough. I guess my last question for you um, mm -hmm. is, is there any other lessons that you believe that the people should know from the book that you wrote that will kind of, you know, help them understand something or, you know, just another issue that they think they can, you know, gain proper perspective from? Yeah, I think the, the other takeaway I'd like to leave with you tonight is that leading change is never easy. Um, it takes special types of people to effectively lead change. And looking at this issue of bird protection there were a number of lessons that i pulled out in terms of um, how you lead change and one is um, being able to communicate the need for change you know showing a vision that um, there's a problem and it needs to be solved and that's what mclean did in the senate he talked about bird extinctions and how important it was to solve them secondly um, you need to be able to overcome obstacles and be flexible and adaptable when opposition comes up. And McLean did that by modifying this um, legislation into a treaty like we talked about earlier. But third, really important is to learn how to build coalitions. And McLean, you know, change starts small, but it ultimately needs um, critical mass. And when McLean brought in Woodrow Wilson, the president from the opposite party, finding uh, unlikely allies to, to build a coalition to move change forward um, is another critically important thing that I learned from, from this. So that's what I would just you know leave your listeners with, Riddell, is that um, we can't expect change uh, to, to come about easily. It's a struggle, and yet you need certain skills, um, you know, showing urgency, being flexible and adaptable and finding solutions, building coalitions. Um, these are things that um, we saw in this, I saw in this Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And I think we can bring those, um, those skill sets into um, the issues of today um, and, and try to learn how change was achieved in the past, apply that to the issues that we are facing today and have some hope that here was a problem that people didn't think would be solved and it was solved and um, we just need good leadership and people to see these things through um, to move forward uh, i definitely couldn't agree more uh, there's definitely a process when there's anything that you want to get past uh, or it, any change that you want to happen it's not going to be immediate. The expectation for it to be immediate is delusional. Obviously, people that, you know, maybe want, hey, I want this policy now, 
are just revolutionaries. And if we destroy the institutions and the system in place, all you're going to be left with is anarchy. So it doesn't bode well for what you have going on. So proper context is important um, as well. More so than anything else from what we saw that if the issue is important enough to the public, to society, there's ways to kind of find an answer. And always keep in mind that compromise is a big, important step towards that. Working with the other side, that is what politics is. The people who say, oh, just let's vote in all Republicans, let's vote in all the Democrats and just get all we want. That's not going to work. That's not how it works. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be ideals challenging one another to come up with a solution. You're supposed to hit these roadblocks so you can iron out the the pave uh the pavement the the path the road to a better solution a bunch of yes men and echo chambers you'll never find a good solution that way so a lot of good lessons that you guys hear for heard from today um of course you can obviously check out all his information on his profile on my website do you want to plug anything before i let you go here today yeah my book is um available on amazon and it makes a great gift for someone you know that is interested in birding or conservation, uh, has an interest in U.S. history. Um, McLean knew five different presidents, so if you know people or yourself likes to learn about our presidents, um, Theodore Roosevelt, um, Woodrow Wilson, that era, it makes a great holiday, you know, Christmas gift. So think about that, but. It's available on Amazon. Um, it's called The Connecticut Yankee Goes to Washington, Senator George P. McLean, Birdman of the Senate. So thanks very much, Riddell, for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, and I hope that uh, the key themes that you find in my book uh, resonate with your leaders, uh, with your listeners, and that they can apply some of these to the issues that they care about today. Yeah, I appreciate having you here, Will, of course. Uh, definitely check out all that. The information will be in the description. Of course, you can visit the website to support the podcast, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. Uh, you can support us on Patreon, of course, to join the Discord, of course. Uh, rate it five stars, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Hope you guys did enjoy. Y'all have a good one. Take care. and We'll check it out, y'all. We got what you need. We're all living in apartments, condos, vans. Well, dude, even you can have a studio. A studio in a box. Yes, we can help you with that right here at Blind Knowledge. We work on your budget, and we figure out your measurements. We'll get you the best sound for the best price. Let me know, 877-237-1143, or at blindknowledge.com. Yep.